Is it is it recording? Yep, we're we're all good now. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, guys. So I'm here with Kyle Evans, my brother, Seth Gullion. Did I pronounce that right, Seth? Yep, you're good. Okay. James Bergman and Stephen Dunn, and today we're going to discuss death and uh, talk about God. So, thanks for being here, guys. Yeah. So, so I wanted to kick off this discussion um, by asking all the believers in the room, what exactly is 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 there to be afraid of in concerning death, considering a believer would, well, surely be comfortable in their um, tightly knitted cozies in heaven and being caressed by God and uh, and angels and so on. So just to just to paint a lovely picture. Um, so are you afraid <clears throat> of death as as a Christian, you know, and and because I'll go into what, you know, my interpretation as an agnostic atheist, but I just wanted to pose that question to kick things off. And as you guys um, answer your own perspective, um, uh, you're going to introduce yourselves. That's what we plan to do. So, uh, Stephen, do you, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, I think what's very strange, you know, at least, you know, from coming from a religious perspective is that I've grown up with a pretty acute, what I'll call uh, anxiety towards death. Uh, it's something that's really preoccupied the total of my life. It goes as far back as I can remember to an experience in fourth grade where there's these various happenings where I'll have panic attacks and not so much being concerned with how I'm going to die. So I don't have this paranoia, I suppose, as far as car accidents diseases, being murdered, or untimely deaths. Uh, I just have this, uh, what I'll call, again, a strange anxiety, a sort of general sort of repulsion to the fact that I'm going to die. Uh, and it goes to this kind of Pascalian imagery that really affected me in my teen years, um, where there's infinite nothing before us and infinite nothing after us. And so I think this anxiety of death kind of transfigured my experience of myself over time. Uh, to show me that this anxiety is educative, such that I almost have this kind of yoke, uh, this kind of chain to the things of the ultimate, you know, to God and religion, uh, that I can't really help. And so Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorite philosophers, says that he who has learned how to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. So uh, death terrifies me. I look at it and I'm horrified. I can't even look at it if I'm being honest with you. But I think Christianity is the worldview for me, which gives me a sense that there's a beyond um, not in terms of a place, because, of course, that space and time cease and we step over into the eternal, right? So I understand heaven and this sort of state as more of a, what we'll call an intellectual vision or a beatific vision, where we behold this perfect, essential relationship with God mm -hmm. that we only experience imperfectly in this life. Uh, you know, some philosopher theologian said that we are the closest we ever are to heaven in this life as well as the closest we are to hell. Uh, you know, take with that statement, of course, as you will. But it, there's this suggestion that our reflection of the divine image is something of a not yet of this present state. And I think as my experience of myself and with God, I get a deepening sensibility of this not yet, of this what is to come. This notion of assurance, of looking forward, uh, really getting to know what this whole deal of being sealed by the Holy Spirit is about. And so on and so forth. Anyway, so not to go on too much, but I suppose those are my musings on death, I guess. Yeah. And that, I think that really hits the point on perhaps how we all feel, you know, I myself too, am terrified of death. I share similar concerns with you, Steve. Um, but you know, ultimately if Christianity is true, um, you know, then we have this 
this you know eternity with god and infinite growth with god and we have something to look forward to this hope right um but yeah, sorry, my microphone was, is like a little, a little wow. too good. It's a garbage. That truck. was that is that was really good. Yeah, but <laughs> also too, if you just look at, I, I, Kyle and I often talk about this a lot too. You, you'll hear, you know, I think it's the Mark Twain quote. He'll say something along the lines of, um, "Death is just going to be like, you know, before I was born." But the thing mm-hmm. is, the difference is we have taken on consciousness now. That's an entirely different state of affairs. Yeah. So when we die, what happens after that, right? What will does that consciousness just go away? Will our identity persist over time like it is now? Um, also, near-death experiences are very interesting. I think there's uh, mm. some really interesting literature on that. Mm. Um, and, of course, the resurrection of Jesus. If that is true, mm. then, I mean, you know, we have good reason to think that we may live on after death. But, yeah, I mean, it really terrifies me. The thought of being here and then disappearing into perhaps nothingness is it's horrifying so. it sounds like there's an element of doubt there eric is is that how yeah. you'd kind of word it like there's doubt of the of the faith that there's well yeah yeah I, I think doubt is interwoven within all of our convictions i have profound doubts but i still maintain my my christianity right mm. but i i'll never be without doubt i don't think you should ever be satisfied with your convictions fully i've, I've never been that way mm-hmm. i respect that so, yeah, Kyle. Uh, if you, whoever you, wants to go first, but. oh, you can go, Kyle. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I feel pretty much the same way. Like Eric said, it's terrifying mm-hmm. the thing about death. But either way, I mean, say God does exist, and we die, and we go to heaven, like James said, fluffy, whatever, all nice and cozy. <laughs> if that happens, we pretty much have nothing to worry about, because that would be great. But if it's the alternative and there's nothingness, mm-hmm. I mean, that can be stressful and very terrifying now. But if that's the case, we won't know anything. We won't even be like, we won't be aware of it at all. We'll just, it will be nothingness. So it's terrifying. But in reality, when it actually happens, it's either going to be great or nothingness. And we won't even know. We won't be aware. That's so, a great, yeah, Kyle, that's an excellent point that you just made there because ultimately life is either tragic or it's something amazing right it's one or the other this is either the grandest cosmic accident of all time or this is great and we're going to be restored and live on in some fashion for eternity perhaps so uh that's a great point man mm-hmm. seth if you want to comment yeah absolutely uh, great insights from all you guys um i would say a part from the God of the Bible, I would say there's a lot of fear. And um, even if there's like a, a Nietzschean view of reality with Armalfate, the love of fate, if I'm being honest, I personally can't go through with that. And um, But oh, uh, since I am a Christian, I do believe in the God of the Bible. I believe that there's um, uh, eternal life. Um, there's uh, verses like John 3.16, John 3.36, um, John eleven twenty five, all those verses that give hope, you know, that there is not, it doesn't end at death, that there is eternal life. Um, and uh, Stephen brought up a good point, um, and I just want to read First uh, Corinthians fifteen verses twenty through twenty two, and it says, "But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I like that. Yeah, yeah man. It was... Yeah, so it, it, it does sound that that you know and eric i really do sympathize with the with the doubt thing because you know it, it, it's not as if on the other side of the coin that atheists don't have doubt i mean I, I suppose both groups can be very confident in their convictions and then others can't i mean the reason why i, I love reading about this subject and, and love discussions with you guys is is because there is a chance that i'm wrong and if i'm wrong that's 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 pretty big you know that there's quite a lot to miss out if i'm wrong <laughs> exactly um, yeah and and likely um for, for your position as well like it, uh, it's uh, i suppose it's maybe arguably better to not try and find out if you are wrong in your current conviction considering the alternative um there's definitely that danger but I can imagine that's even more of an anxiety in some sense than the atheists um because it's like yeah i believe i believe this but wow like look at the complete opposite of that and, and look at the implications of that um yeah no i do have a lot of sympathy for for that um perspective i you know let's say if i did convert in any sense um <clears throat> I, you know i have i have wondered that question like how much would i have this kind of anxiety because i personally do um, I think it's terrifying, like the rest of you guys. Yeah. From my position, it's 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 uh, definitely haunting in some sense. But you know, through through investigating these topics, I find some consolation in. I'd rather see the devil's face than never even try, because at least mm. I know what I'm up against. And mm. you know what, studying death, and I, and I do study death quite a bit in particular, and what it has taught me personally not to go on too long but what, what it has taught me personally is that the urgency of every single second and how little time we should really waste and you know and, and you guys I, I like a response from you guys because I'm wondering do you see it in the same way because I know that you've expressed some kind of death anxiety of some sort but do you view your time more expediently in that sense because you you, you have this conviction that there will be more and there will be time do you experience that? Hmm. I don't know, Stephen, if you wanted to go or. You know, I, I just had a kind of comment that I kind of lost. Oh, I, well, I wanted to deepen kind of what you were saying as far as, you know, if it is true, you know, X, if it is not true, Y. Um, what's really interesting to, me, interesting, interesting to me about the atheist position, for example, I mean, let's suppose that there is no God. Christ really did not raise from the dead, and all of this stuff that Chris, Christians are concerning themselves with is, you know, down the crapshoot. Now, what fascinates me from the atheist perspective is that, at least looking at Christians, we have to really investigate the uh, possibility of a psychosis, right? A psychosis is someone who's quite literally broken from reality. So when I appropriate this death anxiety in such a way where I talk about things like the sufferings of Christ, or I, you know, I'm in a contemporaneous presence with Christ, even though he died a long time ago. You know, I'm, I'm going to sound quite insane. We could explore, you know, the manner of my death anxiety and how I relate myself to others and stuff in psychologically significant ways. But if God does exist, I think we get a totally 
radically different view of reality, such that we're no longer talking merely about the immortality of the soul, but the resurrection of the body. And so I think there is such import as far as what Christians bring to the conversation that this either or uh, cannot be ignored. So for me, I think just to round it back, I don't so much care for the question of does God exist, yes or no. Uh, I, I more so care for the question what difference does it make if he does? Yes. Uh, because some Christians affirm God's existence, but it has no bearing on their lives whatsoever. Um, so I'm interested in the more deeper existential analysis, I guess. And then I had some other thoughts that led to what you're asking, which I forget your question. So I'm rambling, but um, any comments? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I really like what you said there. You know, ultimately, what flows from our beliefs? What are the implications of the atheistic worldview? I know some <laughs> atheists don't think it's a worldview, but even any any small picture of reality, the most subtle pictures of reality, still entails some kind of worldview. You're going to see the world in a radically different way as compared to the Christian, you know, I mean, that just seems so intuitive to me. But, uh, you know, James, I wanted to touch upon your point. Um, I think you were getting at because I'm a Christian, do I still have the same amount of death anxiety as an atheist? Yes. So were... And also, do you view your time more expediently? It's 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 yeah. more uh, accepted to yeah. view your time as more expediently because you will have the time in the afterlife. Uh, I would not say so. You know, I still, we, we have to still realize that we could be wrong, right? So that that's always in my thoughts, just because I believe in an afterlife and some kind of eternal bliss with God, that would never negate the urgency that I must imbue my life with at this very moment, right? So I, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is the case, but I'm still going to live my life as if I will die and perhaps be nothing. I, yeah. I, I think that's the way I would go about it. If Steven, I may, did you want to add a comment? Yeah, yeah. If ahead. I may get a gauge of the room, who exactly are all the believers here? Is uh, is, is James I, the only one who's not? <laughs> no, I'm I'm with James. Yeah, okay, okay. I, I'm, so, I'm yeah. sort of, I'm sort of agnostic. Like, I mean, there's many arguments to support God, and there's many arguments that make sense that don't support God. So I can't really, if that's the case, I can't commit to a certain belief. Like I, I'm just still exploring and looking at all the arguments and some make sense on each side. So I'm suspending judgment. You're suspending judgment. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is the most intellectually honest in your position anyway, because I'm, you know, in, I'm in the same position, I guess, because I find that if I was a strict atheist, that would assume, and you know, whether atheism yeah. is a, a lack belief or whatever, I'm more in agreement <laughs> that um, that we don't need to pussyfoot around in saying that atheism, and I'm fine with this. Atheism is is the negation that God exists, and right. uh, agnosticism is is um, well, it's a knowledge uh, is is a knowledge claim. So I think if I remember correctly. Um, so it's <clears throat> I, I do I do believe, Carl, that it is that's the most honest position you can hold in that exact tile that you stand on. Yeah. Seth, so Jane, oh, go ahead. Seth, did you want to interject? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of great insights from all, all you guys. Um, I feel like th there's not that much anxiety uh, as a believer, if I'm being honest, with me personally, with me mm. personally. Um, 
if I wasn't a believer, then uh, I think there would be an anxiety, uh, if I have to be honest. Um, and also, when it comes to morality, if there is no afterlife and if there is no God, uh, is Dostoevsky correct? And I know Dostoevsky didn't say this in Brothers Karamazov, but um, if God doesn't exist, is everything permissible? And, and I understand that atheists do try to um, give a justification for morals. You know, uh, an example would be uh, Arthur Schopenhauer saying how compassion is the basis for morality. However, I see problems with that. And the reason why I say that is because uh, why be compassionate if God doesn't exist, you know? And so I, I believe that there, um, if I'm being honest, I think it leads to a lot of problems for the atheist position if there is no afterlife and if there is no God. I think mm -hmm. I think it can be flipped, um, to be honest, because I love I love the Dostoevsky um, point that's illustrated in, in the great um, book, The Brothers Karamazov. Um, but I think it can be opposed in the sense that under God's authority, under God's command, under his or under his uh, influence, you can at the same time as the atheist believing that everything's permitted, you can as a believer believe that considering God is actually commanding this, what <coughs> God says is also permitted. So I think it goes both ways, which is a really interesting uh, dilemma, I think. Hmm. Okay. Um, Switching gears just a little bit, unless anyone had comments. Yeah, I uh, did want to. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry for interrupting, Eric, but um, oh, it's okay. that is interesting, James. And uh, did did you get that from a uh, Zizek, right? Zizek, Zizek, yeah, and violence. Zizek. Yeah, it's a good yeah. book. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, and I, I do understand where he's coming from, but um, if we believe in a God who is holy and who is good, then I believe that it, that's it. A a great authority to believe in um yeah the moral law giver if the moral law giver is holy and good then um then we have a holy and good moral law to follow so we'd hope yeah yeah thank you mm. so uh, it, just shifting gears a little bit james i did want to ask you um so you say that you are an agnostic atheist what why not i i'm, I'm just curious about this. why not just say you're an atheist like or or you're an agnostic what what are those? Yeah. What I I don't understand that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, it's, it's partly for convenience and also under the okay. particular parameters of which I've investigated the definitions. So the way that I put it is, so it goes agnostic atheist. So agnostic is I don't know, and then there's a but. Um, I don't know, but I'm not convinced that God exists, and I'm more convinced. That he doesn't as far as i'm currently concerned so that um so it's i don't know okay. therefore i don't believe but that don't believe is is because i'm just not convinced of you know right. it's like it's like a seesaw you know i'm i'm more i'm more on the uh disbelief than <laughs> belief yeah that's that's yeah. how it works anyway okay okay um yeah i think agnosticism you know interesting position how you're suspending judgment towards that god proposition but the way i look at it is you know, that proposition is either true or false. You know, God cannot exist and exist at the same time. And we all know that, right? That is either true or false. So with your limited time here, and you have this body of evidence over here and this body of evidence, why not just commit to one side and say, I think this is more likely, you know, when the evidence is on both sides? Well, considering Pascal's wager, you you would definitely want to. <laughs> oh, well... <laughs> 
that's yeah. Uh, but I don't know if you had any other comments, guys, on that. You know. Yeah, I 100% agree with Eric. Uh, we need to follow the law of excluded middle. Uh, it's either that God exists or He doesn't exist, and I don't believe that there's a third alternative. Steven, do what do you think? Kyle, remember. anyone? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll have a comment, but I mean, if Kyle had something, I didn't want to have him feel neglected. James, are you going to ask a question? Don't let me steal the floor. I think you were going to say something. No, no, I was just going to ask if uh, Kyle had anything to say. So go ahead, shoot. Well, so I guess the thing I would respond with is that you know, again, we're back to the question of God exists or God doesn't. You know, I agree; those are the only two possibilities. Mm -hmm. But when you look at, let's say, the difference between an agnostic atheist and a believer, is it that the believer knows something differently than the unbeliever knows? Um, so in other words, in short, I don't think the differences between us are intellectual, but they are, uh, call them existential, but I'll say they pertain to the will or to the total of the human life. Um, and so normally when I'm looking at disputes between theists and atheists, uh, it's you know, we could talk about concepts and, you know, the ways in which we contradict each other would seem obvious, but what isn't so obvious is this kind of inwardness within our own experience. You know, John Calvin talks about an experience of, with ourselves kind of leads us necessarily into a, con a kind of contemplative experience with God that you can't really leave the two out with one another. And so I want to see the quality of that relationship in the individual life, whether or not you ascribe to be a Christian theist or an atheist or, you know, what have you. Um, so anyway, as I said before, we kind of imperfectly reflect this image of God. I believe that, you know, of course, as a Christian. And so that's going to look like something in the individual life, independent of what your intellect uh, reveals to me, as it were. Uh, revealing as it is, but uh, I don't know if that's kind of a weird thing to say, that it's, you know, hmm. your well, desires uh, and your will is going to be very important in this conversation. I, I think, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I think I think what you're trying to say there is that you have to also listen to your heart as well as your head. and things get revealed to us independent from the head. And if we only rely on our mind, then that will lead us down the garden path in some sense. Is, is that what you were um, trying to illustrate there, that, that there's more to intellectualism? You know, I, I would say so. I'd give it some more poetry, but I think you nailed it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. Uh, uh, Stephen, real quick, though, um, about that agnosticism, where you have this body of evidence over here and you have this body of evidence over here, what do you think about agnostics who just do not commit to one side or the other. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's important to keep this distinction in mind. You know, Norman Geisler, uh, Christian philosopher, you know, RIP, um, he wrote a book in, you know, on a Christian apologetics, a classic text, where he gives this kind of funny difference between an ordinary agnostic and an ordinary <clears throat> agnostic. Now, an ordinary agnostic is someone, you know, as we typically know, you know, Ah, gnosis, no knowledge. They have a suspension of judgment on the question. Now, an ornery agnostic is the one who says that there is an epistemological gap between myself and God that we can't cross. And so <coughs> this agnosticism is really just my being unable to, you know, make my way over that bridge, as it were. Um, so I'm more interested philosophically in, in examining that second kind of agnosticism because it's more philosophically packed. But as far as the one who suspends judgment, you know, as Pas Pascal kind of said it best before I did, that we can't possibly suspend judgment on this question because we are ships bound for port. Uh, this very conversation of death is what pushes us along. And so pushing aside, James, and don't let me, this is not a direct attack, I'm just saying, pushing aside this kind of, you know, you know suspension of judgment is in a way of kind of 
procrastinating as it were. Uh, it's, uh, you know, keeping oneself at a distance from what I think uh, the responsibility and the meaning of life entails. So anyway. I think that was really well said. Yeah, I, I just, again, if you have this evidence on both sides of, of you know, why just suspend judgment and all through your life just say, oh, I don't know. You know, it just seems, I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, that, that, that was just a little strange to me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think it rubs us all the wrong, wrong way in the sense that we're all the, the common trait between us is that we actually understand that there is a profound difference between God existing and not existing. And I think that a lot of people, especially in society in general, it's not really advocated that that's a important question. I mean, more money, for example, uh, materialism is much more uh, profitable than people's mm. uh, <laughs> status of belief. And so it's not surprising mm. that society doesn't manifest people who are critical thinkers. We have to do the work ourselves most of the time. Um, the education system um, is it dates back to the industrial age, at least in the UK. Um, it hasn't been remotely changed as such since then. So it's, it's a pitiful um, thing yeah i would i would say though about and i love the quote that you shared Stephen, about the um the ship and the port and, and being mm. you know tied there i think that's an amazing way to put it yeah um what, what i would say and, and maybe we can i don't know have some thoughts shared about this but you know, whilst there there's more to consider than what we can bound physically um materially the problem is how we interpret what is true uh, that presents itself to us that isn't of that category, which is uh, immaterial. Because, you know, for example, um, hallucinations, they are immaterial um, in the same, and in the same, and I don't mean to equivocate this, but in the same sense that that God, as far as we are concerned, is not is not material. So, and I know that it's, um, I'm not trying to equivocate the same thing, but the, the principle is the same, that you can't material, you can't materially, um, uh, measure either of them in that sense and my question is and my 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 problem is well how do we interpret what immaterial inclinations intuitions feelings are true over those that are not um and and then we talk to muslims who say that they've got spiritual experiences from allah himself saying you've chosen the right religion basically we're here for you and christians have let's say the same thing and then everybody's like oh well you know as far as they're concerned I know, I know it's a silly example, but I think it applies. As far as they're concerned, they've been called upon. The revelation has come upon them, as did Muhammad with Gabriel. So mm -hmm. my, again, my issue is how we interpret um, the phenomenological issues that, that come in front of us, um, how, mm -hmm. how we deal with that. Um, anyone want to go first? Or? <laughs> uh, I was like, Seth, Eric, by all means. Yeah, I mean, I've said this many times before. I don't think we should look at religion as a closed system of thought, right? Um, ultimately, this is the collective human experience verging towards the infinite, right? So I think there is there's truths in in even though there's religious pluralism, I still think there's a common ground mm -hmm. at hand here. Mm -hmm. You know, just say if the incarnation never happened, right? And mm -hmm. you know, that still wouldn't negate God's love. For humanity, I mean, m most monotheistic traditions all agree that God is love and has an interest in His creation, right? Um, so, I think we could still construct, um, you know, a, a paradigm of love even without the incarnation of God, right? The incarnation of Christ. 
So if anyone wants to add on to that. Yeah, um, some good, great insights right, uh, from you guys. Um, now, with concerning with other religions, and I do agree with Eric, there is some truth in, uh, in other religions. However, if we're if we're trying to pursue the truth of reality, you know, and when we ask the big questions, uh, why are we here, where we're going, um, and I, I do believe it's it's up to it's it's up to the individual to find out those answers. And uh, you brought up a good point, James, and uh, that like sometimes that's a lot of responsibility, you know. And uh, I don't want to say people are lazy. Uh, I'm, I don't want to say people there's a intellectual laziness going on um, for some people that may be the case. But um, however, I believe that if we really do care about the truth and uh, let's examine those religions, um, let's go over the evidence and uh, let's come to that conclusion. Mm. And, and, and being very careful of, I was talking to Stephen yesterday, being very, very careful of what standard of evidence we become comfortable with believing, mm. you know, and that is so important so so important and you know sophisticated uh christianity and theologians i mean on all sides really i mean th there are you know these things are taken seriously um but it it, it then becomes well <coughs> i think my standard of evidence is more legitimate and valid and so on um than yours and the same with me um as an agnostic atheist like me not thinking for example that the uh, historical evidence alone is suffice is uh, suffice to um, justify belief in Christ, you know, uh, the resurrection and, and well, the, the bedrock of Christianity itself. So without that, it's doomed. So I, yeah, I mean, just bringing it back to myself and how I relate to that, it's, yeah, I, I'm not ready to sacrifice myself <laughs> in a dramatic way, um, change my lifestyle and so on, um, because I don't particularly find historical evidence alone, i.e., the Christianity, um, the bedrock of Christianity, Christ, resurrection, um, to be to be legitimate enough for my standard of evidence, which is more on um, consistent material um, evidence. You know, if I may step in, I just think this is a fascinating way in which atheists and, and Christians, for example, can agree with one another, because I think there's a desire from both of us to not want to fall into the temptation of psychologizing God, right? Making it just to be an experience of, you know, the passions or what have you, or falling into romanticism, right? Where everything just becomes poetry, everything mm -hmm. just, just falls into song. Um, and so I think we're really trying to get out, you know, what's true? How can, you know, what, you know, this idea of the truth that's true for my life, the truth for which I'm to live and to die. Uh, the kind of meaning to my life, as it were. And the incarnation for me is interesting as a Christian because, you know, one of the names for Christ is God with us. And so the incarnation is the very means by which our cold, dead notions, our philosophical proofs even have any relevance or being in the world is because it's embodied through the person of Christ. Um, so that is to say that we see this union between nature and person and this expression of the Godhead, uh, you know, Jesus Christ. And so the fact, you know, just speaking, of course, as a Christian here, the, the fact of, you know, that instantiation in the world provides meaningful content for how I'm to live my life by imitating his life, such mm -hmm. as to say that his life contains the necessary constituents for perfecting my own being, you know. 
he talks about believe unto me, but he who you know believes in me does the will of my father. So this believing and willing activity are kind of one with one another. Um, such as to say that Thomas Aquinas even makes this interesting comment that knowing and loving are the same thing. They just differ notionally so as far as faculties. Because uh, to know something, you have to be your will has to incline you to inspect that further. So the intellect and will can't act apart from one another. So in thinking about a kind of spiritual psychology and all this kind of stuff, it's interesting to keep that in mind uh, that our intellects, you know, we could all put our philosophical cards on the table. We can call bluffs, as it were, but um, you know, I think the conversation always has to get some, to something much deeper. And uh, anyway, incarnation provides a way into that. Long story short. Exactly, and I 100% I, I agree with uh, with Stephen, and um, there's a really good verse in Acts 17, 28, where the Apostle Paul, when he's debating with the, the Stoics and the Epicureans in Athens, he says that in him we live and move and have our being, and uh, I 100% agree with Paul when he said that, and um, also when I, I just want to touch on something, James, you said about historical evidence, and, uh, and I understand uh, where you're coming from, uh, James, uh, Nowadays, people do want, I guess, empirical evidence, or um, I, I think you, I believe you put in like material terms. Um, however, um, when it comes to Christianity, Christianity is a religion that is deeply rooted in history, and um, I always tell people that history is always on the side of Christianity, and I believe that's a great death blow to Islam. When we get into history, history is not on the side of Islam. History is on the side of Christianity. So um, I always tell people to keep looking into history, uh, into the church fathers, um, into the spread of Christianity from uh, from 33 AD to uh, until it was legalized in 313 AD. Um, I always tell people to look into that and uh, come to the conclusion um, what they believe, if, if it's true or not. Yeah, I, I'm sure, I'm sure I mean, there's a lot to Christianity's history. I mean, I, I do think Islam has got notable things of, of their history. Um, for example, Muhammad's life is much more well and accurately um, noted, documented than Jesus's life. I mean, we know we knew hardly anything of Jesus's life, really. I mean, you know, we only know a few years of his life, if, if anything. But Muhammad, we know his entire life. We have uh, I was reading Martin Ling's uh, Muhammad on his life and um, the, the conquests and so on and 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 how um, that sort of happened. And the historical documents behind Muhammad's life is amazing. It's really, really amazing. And look, independent of whether his divinity is legitimate, um, historically speaking, Islam has got a pretty good um, hard fist there because it's his his life is so well um, and and yeah, cross cross examination and all that sort of thing from different sources. I know Christianity obviously has that as well, but what I'm saying is is that we shouldn't dismiss it too quickly, because and especially especially on Jesus, I mean, again, <laughs> we we know barely anything about him, um, whereas Muhammad, we know a lot about him. Um, he's much more of a fleshed out character. Um, so I just I just thought I'd put it out there. Yeah, uh, that that was a lot to. That you said, James, and I just want to go over real quick. Um, when it comes to the life of Muhammad, um, the the sources that were written on the life of Muhammad came hundreds of years later, after he died in 632 A.D. Now, when it comes to the documents of Jesus's life, all of them come in from the first century. Even Bart Ehrman admits that um, the when it comes to the documents of the New Testament, they have early 
attestation compared to other documents, whether it's Suetonius, Tacitus, or any other Greco-Roman literature. <coughs> so uh, I believe when it comes to historical evidence, uh, I believe that it's on the side of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Any further comments or <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying listening. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, as you guys know, I, I defend, um, I defend Christianity more than I do Islam currently. Um, I, I mean, I just have a few issues with, with, uh, Islam. The Quran was especially disappointing to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, Seth, I don't really, I don't really disagree. I don't know. Again, they, they, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we need to debate this because I'm not too sure about Muhammad when they actually wrote it down to when it was, let's say, publicly made uh, evident, let's say. Um, but as a cohesive whole, I mean, I don't know that maybe they just, I don't know, it was all made up and they made a story that that is possible, I suppose. Um, again, I can't really defend Islam any more than that because um, I, I don't know. Um, and also there's the prophecies. Prophecies exist in, in both uh, Christianity and um, Islam. I don't know how much you guys have looked into Islamic prophecies, but I mean, I, I'm not convinced of them, obviously, but they, <coughs> the point is, is that they, they share. And this goes back to the main point. Like, yeah, the, these religions actually share many of the same things prophecies um historical sort of attempts let's say of of making it uh, known to the world because it was pr profound to them as far as they were concerned um so they they definitely have these similarities the question is <laughs> which one got it right i mean you know to say jesus was body swapped comes across to me as a satirical comedy piece and anything so well i'm curious to interject with a certain question amidst that kind of plurality problem do you think it's either more probably the case that, you know, one of these religions are right or it's more probably the case that, you know, maybe they're all scratching at something, but none of them are right? Because there's yeah, this kind I, of there's this otherness yeah. right of the divine. I don't know which one you would say. I, well, I would certainly say that um, I would certainly say that it's more likely that none of them are. I mean, look, as far mm -hmm. as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. to keep this brief. They, the, the people behind all of this, they they were the first attempts. I mean, the, the Bible, for example, was one of the first attempts to legitimately understand nature, to understand life, to philosophically, poet, poetically, um, using literature and so on, um, to understand the world around us. And fair enough. And and whilst I, you know, as as I made public, I, I enjoy studying the Bible. I think it's really interesting. Um, the the story of Job, although I think that God's behavior is not exactly the most um, benevolent in that story, to be honest, nor necessary, may I add. Um, but I but I do love the the philosophical underpinnings of it. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I think I think it has literary merit. And I think and I think the furthest it's got is just to explain how <coughs> deeply and desperately human beings cling to this sense of hope, if it even if it kills them. Because as the apostles, you know, like many people died for Christianity, um, also Islam, I may add as well. Like, but that doesn't their compassion, their adam, their their the fact that they were adamant that their belief was true doesn't necessitate to that belief being true. Just because somebody is convinced it's of true. their beliefs and dies for it doesn't mean that it's true. I mean, you could say the same of um, you know ISIS bombers, for example. Is Islam true because they are convinced that Allah is is the one and only God? I mean, you know. 
Yeah. Good points. I mean, I think when I when I hear those kinds of claims, I think I hear a lot of the times the struggle of boundary points that oftentimes come up in the religious life, especially. Um, but I think it comes to this kind of test upon our experience. I don't know. You can I think sometimes think of like a house with different stories. Like some people kind of reside in the basement, you know, concerned with the passions, you know, that kind of view of life where it's only concerned with the moment. Let the world kind of come as it is. Um, but really the significance of the past and the present, the future hasn't really taken up kind of significance in their lives. And then we have people who kind of stay in the dining area, you know, upward more one level, more oriented towards the good, towards values and stuff like that. But then it seems to me that there's this problem of, you know, what's in the attic and this debate ensues on the dining room floor that, you know, don't go up there. There's really nothing up there. We're going to stay and enjoy the party at the, uh, at the dining level. Uh, but then, you know, you have to wonder about this view of life, which says that there's something more. Um, this disposition of something more, uh, either, you know, it's one of those things where maybe there's something deep about human beings where we just want to go after stuff. Our imaginations are huge. Um, they're ordered towards the infinite, but it's not towards any particular kind of picture, right? And so that presents itself as a problem. And so I think these boundaries that you keep identifying, I mean, again, just to say it succinctly as a Christian, uh, has to do with faith. This kind of sight or this kind of vision or understanding that we're talking about either has to do with possessing this faith or it doesn't. And Kierkegaard makes an important point about this. If I can just ramble for 60 seconds about Kierkegaard again. Um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so he presents this problem about the truth where, you know, in our being outside of the truth, we don't just merely stand outside of it. We don't even have the criterion for coming to an understanding of it. We stand so alien or forlorn to it that he chooses to call this kind of ignorant state sin. And that the means or the condition that the teacher gives the student is faith. It's the condition for our entering into the truth. And so I think there's a way in which in our conversations about faith, we skip ahead that criterion. Uh, and try and get into those inner mysteries, which they're only mysteries uh, pertaining to selves, right? So you are a part of the equation. Um, again, we can put our philosophical cards in the table, but there's a way in which I think we're we're shuffling ourselves apart from what's uh, really, I don't know, tying to our being. It's more deeper, if that makes sense. Anyway. I keep saying the same things in different ways. I think you guys are getting that sense at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. I, it, you're formulating in different ways, though, which is cool. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're presenting well, it in different ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I just I just want to raise that what appears to be, you know, the difference between us is an air of ridiculousness, you know? And I, there's no hiding that. We can talk about our differences, uh, you know, who knows what evidence or what better arguments the other has. But, I don't know, when it comes to the things of faith and what really is the difference between <laughs> one who possesses that faith experience... Uh, it looks like I told you yesterday. It looks like a joke. It looks like, you know, uh, a big comical kind of enterprise. So, exactly, anyway. Steve. Exactly, Stephen. And you put it perfectly with Kierkegaard's view with the the aesthetic, the ethic, and then the religious. And uh, mm. I believe that that analogy you gave about the being in the basement, then the dining room, then the attic. That was just it was that That's was great. a beautiful analogy. Yeah. Mm. Bless. I didn't. I didn't say it, so I won't take credit. But bless you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but anyway, no, uh, Kyle. So, what I'm curious to ask. So, Eric, you uh, have a degree in philosophy. You're going to school for philosophy. I, I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy and psychology from Rutgers. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't I'm, know. In, I'm starting school in two weeks, um, a master's program in global security at oh, Johns sick. Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. I would love to do philosophy, but, you know, the humanities too. in America is just so neglected, man. Yeah, so, hate it. It's a shame. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. hate it. But um, I was just wondering if, if Kyle had the same uh, interest, familiarity with, with philosophy, if you guys are brothers in that kind of close way. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're yeah, like a Cain and Abel. Right now. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, Eric and Kyle. It was a joke. Don't kill each other. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right now, I just got my associates in criminal justice. So when I started school, I really wasn't interested in this, but as Eric got more interested in it, we started talking about it more and just over time now, it's pretty much all me and him talk about is philosophy <laughs> and things like this. I everything. love that. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. So yeah. now that you... my associates, I'm probably going to continue school, go to Rutgers or Rowan and wow. maybe study philosophy in school or just continue to do it on my own time. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you both grow up in a you know in a Christian home in a faith kind of based home? Uh, not, really. not really. No, no. It wasn't I mean, like it, a big thing at all. It wasn't talked about or anything like that. Right, right. It was kind of my family was disinterested. We weren't theists, uh, agnostics, or atheists. They really didn't talk about. it. I mean, we went to church from time to time, probably just to impress my grandmother, who was a devout Catholic. <laughs> but it was just really never talked about, and. Um, you know, not giving my life story here, but uh, I really didn't think about it. And around 16, 17, I started to really wonder about these questions, uh, you know, these deep existential questions. Why am I here? Is there a God? What the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And then I found I found the new atheist and I was into them for a short period of time. And then I hit really heavy thinkers like Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, um, and some contemporaries like Planiga, Ed Fazer, David Bentley Hart. And then that kind of just shot off from there. And here mm-hmm. I am. <laughs> so nice so who's older who's younger i'm guessing i'm 25 kyle's 22 okay yeah yeah all right yeah. sorry i was just curious to get that quick background just to see oh yeah that. yeah man um so do you does anyone have any other comments on what we were discussing or do you want to move on to something else i don't know how much time we all have if you want to go for 20 minutes half hour well i think Jane, so seth how are you doing on time you doing okay yeah, out. I'm doing good. Uh, I'll leave in four minutes. Uh, I'll just exit. I'll, I'll just leave. Oh, okay. You're not going to say, but you're not going to say bye? You're not going to say bye? <laughs> well, we're still kind of betrayed, Seth. It's really yeah, yeah, I was like, man, you're, was you're a horrible person. <laughs> I'm just going to be like, bye. <laughs> so, guys, kind of shifting gears a little bit. I do want to talk, and this is really shifting gears, because Kyle and I discuss this a lot, the infinite regress and Stephen, I, I saw you did a video on that, right? And I really like the way you articulated that. If if you want to comment on that a little bit, yeah. Like, you'd have, what is I'd an have... infinite regress? Can there be infinite contingencies with no necessary stopping point? I, I think I saw your video a while ago. Yeah, I have to review really that video again. I think I made not only a comment on an infinite regress, kind of at the you know the metaphysical level, but also on the psychological. So mm-hmm. when, once you said that, Robert Barron came to mind. Um, where I was getting those thoughts. So I'm just forgetting particularly what I said. I'll have to look back into it. Um, But I suppose, I mean, what's the, so what's the problem, the nature of the problem uh, per se? Well, the the problem is really because some people will challenge the premise that um, there's any contingency at all. 
right? So some people might say, well, what's contingent? And then other people will say, well, yeah, it can go on forever. There's just no necessary being. There's no stopping point. And I think that is logically absurd. I think there has to be something that evades the dynamic of contingency, which gives rise to any contingency at all. Yeah. Right? yeah. And even atheists like Graham Oppie agree with this, that there is a stopping point. They just differ on the nature of that stopping point. Right. Mm. They, right, so, right. I mean, there's got to be the buck stops somewhere. Yeah, it, it's a it's a deeply, you know, integrated and complicated conversation in philosophy that really goes back to the Greeks. And, you know, if you don't really know what's going on in the conversation with the Greeks as far as causality, the debate between the one and the many, then it's going to be difficult to kind of get a really significant grasp on the problem of infinite regress. Right. So, for example, we could talk about, you know, the two views of, you know, Parmidian, you know, the view of reality as, you know, monism, as we know it, all is one, right? Uh, there, the the appearances of change are really just fleeting, but there's really only the one. We can make perceptive distinctions um, as to, between this or that thing, but it's really all one, right? This kind of classic view of pantheism that we find in the West. And then there's the Heraclitian view, which says that all is change, right? <coughs> Um, and so I think what you get through Aristotle and through Thomas Aquinas in response to this kind of problem is a integrating of both the one and the many. Um, so it's it's so as to say not to fall into the trap of Parmenidian Par, Parmenidian sort of necessity, where you know this causal link is just one thing kind of after another, and it's one big actual chain. But the view of Aquinas and Aristotle is to suggest that. Our, the very state of being is itself, as far as created being, is itself uh, a succession, such that being and becoming are wound up with one another. So when we look at the created order, we see this feature of contingency or the possibility of not being. Mm -hmm. right. But for there to be even be this possibility of not being, there must be something that which is causing the things to be. Um, so that's why Aquinas says there can't be this infinite regress of of causes or in the chain because we wouldn't ever get to some particular realization. There wouldn't, there'd be kind of a denial of change as it were, either in the Parmenidian sense or in the Heraclitian sense. Right. And yeah. how could anything exist at this current moment, right? If, if there is no necessary foundation. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know. Well, yeah, Stephen, I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a quick question, Stephen. Yeah. Yeah. What's up? So uh, when it comes to um, Aquinas's uh, first way or the Aristotelian argument for God, as Edward Fraser will put it, um, he says mm -hmm. that um, how God is the unactualized actualizer, that he's pure act. Um, yes. What what's your view with um, and someone saying a naturalist, a metaphysical naturalist, for example, <laughs> saying that um, why can energy just being pure act or the universe itself? Uh, is there any problems with that view? Uh, yeah, because you know, these are really impersonal forces that don't bring about change. They're not an agent of change, in other words. So the kind of actualizer that we have with God is that he essentially adheres in all things as an agent. So again, this is Aquinas' solution to not falling into the Parmidian view, which says that God adheres essentially in all things, that God's very substance or nature is in things. Uh, a metaphysical naturalist might say something to that similar effect, even though they might not believe in God, they could give it a different kind of name, but they'd still probably view more that monistic kind of view. That's where the materialists tend to go. Now, Aquinas says that they don't, the God doesn't inherit things accidentally or as predicates either. So such as tallness, wideness, blackness, whiteness, uh, roundness, nearness, 
these are all predicates, but God doesn't adhere to things in that way. So that'd be the Heraclitian view, always changing, always being understood differently, process theology, right? Mm-hmm. So Aquinas says God adheres in things as an agent. God's relationship to creatures is by way of uh, analogy, right? So God has a likeness in all things, but in that likeness, we have to recognize that God is still other. Um, so our language falls short, but it's still approximate, and it's still faithful to representing the divine being, which is why all of us have never sat down and talked about God before, but we can come at a round table and exchange meaningful concepts in intelligible ways because we can abstract intelligible data through sensible perception by reading a Bible, by listening to a sermon, uh, and so on and so forth. So I don't know if that answered your question. But. Awesome. Yeah, yes, yes, that, was, that was great. And uh, Seth, do you have to go? Yeah. Uh, I'm okay. Nice talking, guys. Love the Take care, Seth. Good to have Take you. Care, we'll talk soon. Later, Brody. Now, I, I did want to touch upon something else. Kyle, you and I discuss this all the time. So, you know, the fact that, or rather the idea that God has just always existed, that seems to really mystify you, Kyle, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Especially, like I said, um, right, right. however many years, the billions of years, millions of years, whatever, the universe was just... It was just chemicals, <clears throat> everything just roaming around, no life, mm-hmm. no consciousness, nothing for like billions or millions of years. I don't know the exact amount of years, but yeah, right, right. like where was God or the loving God at during those times? Like what was he doing? Yeah, I mean, it's just confusing because if God has always been... Like, why did he wait that long to create humans or consciousness for mm. life? It's a, it's a good question. Any thoughts on that, guys? Or? So, James, don't let me have James, please. If you got something, hit it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I would agree, um, Kyle. Overall, that that's a that's you know a reasonable concerned to be honest um I, I suppose what i was thinking of i've just heard the counter argument that well and, and this is a problem with the counter argument that i've heard the most often is well we just don't know what god's ultimate plan is and look like i said with eric before i i i i get that philosophically speaking but it's just an unsatisfying um reply <laughs> to hear yeah. it's basically saying look we don't know but at the same time, it, it does make sense, philosophically speaking, because we have to attribute our own mammalian ignorance, right, in comparison to this God. You know, that, that is that that's a huge comparison there that I think we have to be honest and at mm. least admit that that exists if we are to have I, this discussion. And I agree with you, too. If we think of what Augustine said, if you understand God, you are not talking about a God. Right. So I don't think we're meant to fully grasp the nature of God. I think we can know some things about God, but we, we can never know God in it of himself. I mean, we're talking about something beyond all measure, right? But divine um, hiddenness does does also concern me. Why not just... God, by definition, can do whatever he wishes, right? So why doesn't he just reveal himself... Yeah. Why doesn't yeah. he just reveal himself in the way that every individual uh, will believe and be convinced by and of him? Yeah. That I think I think there's I haven't heard of any any good reason why that can't just be the case. You know what? Because he wants to test us. 
I repudiate that idea, to be honest. It's just, it's just, it, it just reminds me of this mammalian creation two thousand years ago that was more, most likely under that framework. I mean, it just sounds like, you know, man just made it up. It's just such a bad. It seems to me just such a bad uh, excuse. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think of this in Greek plays. There is this kind of device used called Deus ex, ex Deus ex machina where literally in the middle of a place and someone would be talking, but then this actor would be lifted down in a, you know, kind of can, I don't know what you want to call it, a platform uh, representing a God kind of interrupting the play or an angel. And usually it's this kind of awkward interjection to interrupt, you know, some bad thing or some death happening. And I think oftentimes similarly atheists, or at least let's just say critics of religion. I don't even want to keep saying atheist, but they're simply looking for this similar deus ex machina, right? Someone who's going to come down and be hosted on the platform and interrupt at the awkward movement. Uh, we see this device in cinema, for example. I don't know if you've seen, like, those camcorder horror films. Mm -hmm. uh, Cloverfield is one of them, where, you know, just at the end, it all of a sudden, like, abruptly ends because, you know, someone died or something. So that annoying device where something just kind of splats and puts the whole kind of order. Anyway, I only point that out just to suggest that I think in God's creating the universe that there still is this possibility, uh, what philosophers will call a moral justification for why he brought the universe to be and why uh, we have this experience with evil and suffering as we do. Um, now, I think that's just a kind of vague answer of philosophy, but um, <clears throat> one comment that I'll make, uh, just to kind of finish, go back to uh, your brother's point, um, as far as why did he wait for all that time you know, to act? or to intervene mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. Well, say for, it's interesting that you made the language, you know, why did God wait? So that waiting presupposes a kind of passing of time, right? But of course, God is eternal. So these distinctions of, you know, too late, too long, past, future, they're all one, or they're kind of eternally present within God. So this is one view of God's eternality that, of course, take it or leave it. But uh, it's to say that God is not bound by past, future, present distinctions, but God is kind of experiential reality all as one kind of total sort of event, as it were, uh, such that every activity, every event that does take place begins in the act of God and ends in the act of God, as it were. Um, so I would say that our not seeing the completion of a certain act uh, doesn't, you know, give us the full picture of what's going on there. So. I would still say that there is an air of doubt, um, but um, mm -hmm. it, it's different from a kind of I don't know willful ignorance, I guess if that if that even helps. Yeah. So, anyway, and of of course we anthropomorphize God a lot. I mean, if God is the infinite bedrock of all there is, then our time is not going to be you know uh, the same as His time, right? Right. There's a big there's going to be a big difference there. So. Um, I think William Lane Craig, just to, just to steel man that point, or, or both points, Eric and Stephen, just to steel man that even further, just to back it up. Mm -hmm. William Lane Craig actually um, brought up a, a, I think it was a series of studies or a study. Just I just remember the point that you made, which was, um, and this was more specifically to, I think, the, uh, the resurrection. But somebody asked him, well, why did God um, wait so long to do to do that, for instance? And William mm. Lane Craig kind of turned around and said, well, actually, there is this, and I don't I haven't looked into this study, but it, I, I just want to put it out there because I thought it was quite an interesting reply. But he said, um, if we take into account all of history and when the population growth became at its most rife, 
that was actually at the same time of the resurrection. So in actual fact, the message, that was the best time to spread the message. Now, I haven't looked into the details of how that very is true, interesting. Um, but I thought I'd just put it out there. Yeah, because yeah. Kyle, that's what you and I were talking about the other night. Um, you said, what, why did he not do it last year? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why 2,000 yeah, yeah. years ago? Why that point in history? So, James, or, that's a really good point that you bring up. Or like uh, James said, like, if he did it once, why isn't he doing it now or doing it again? And if he can do anything, supposedly, why doesn't he do it in a way each individual, like James said, would understand it? It's, if he can, yeah. why wouldn't he? Like, what's the point? I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, you know, it's a good when I remember when, so I was an atheist in my my, my kind of later teen years, and I remember my brother explaining this very same problem to me, <laughs> where I asked the same thing, like, why didn't he come sooner? Why there's all this evil and bad stuff happening? Why wasn't there an earlier interjection? Why two thousand years ago? Especially when there's no video cameras and stuff, right? But in explaining the cross, he gives this imagery where he tells me. Um, you know, the effects of Christ's cross stretch forward into the future, so, you know, future believers, and it has efficacy in that direction, but it also has an efficacy in the other direction, towards the past. And I remember he literally stuck up both arms to imitate the, the view of the cross, and in his describing it, I was like, man, I see what you're saying, that's a real cheesy way of putting it, but anyway, <laughs> I just thought that was kind of a fascinating kind of little point. But it's interesting to, to, to comment that it goes in both directions. And this is actually the view that a certain theologian, Thomas Aquinas, uh, in the Summa Theologiae, he actually has a whole question dedicated to uh, why come at this time? Was it fitting that he should have came sooner or later? And Aquinas actually provides an argument in suggesting that there was uh, a fittingness at that point in time uh, you know, for Christ to you know, come as he did. I forget the full extent of the argument. It's there, I promise. But, wow. That's a, I, if you could find that and send that to me, maybe there's like a snippet of it somewhere online. That would be really interesting to read because I've, uh, of course, thought about this question deeply, but I've never had the chance to explore it yet. So Yeah, yeah, no, it's fascinating. Uh, the, of course, assuming theology, it's all available online, so I'll have to find the snippet and I'll definitely send it to you. Cool, uh, yeah, man. But uh, yeah, no, good. dude, it's it's so good. But um, I want to um, I want to also steal man once again, just for the sake of it being an interesting concept. And I and I brought this up with Stephen yesterday. Um, when we were filming the interview that we had. Um, oh, man, it just slipped my mind. Anyway. <laughs> oh, wait, no, no, I got it, I got it. So referring to the brothers Karamazov, um, again, um, there is in the Grand Inquisitor section, um, which is my favourite, shock horror. Um, yeah. So the obviously the Messiah returns, but obviously is not taken seriously, um, and so on and so on. And my, you know, it's interesting because... You know, when I do think of, OK, well, realistically, if Jesus or, you know, if some Jesus figure or if Jesus himself did actually come in this day and age, who's to say that we would even believe it? Um, who's to say that we wouldn't repudiate the idea? Who's to say that we wouldn't um, fight against it? Um, and there are, there are some good films, actually. There's one horror film in particular with uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan that had that same idea. I didn't really enjoy the film that much, but it, it was a cool idea. Um, but... But yeah, I mean, the question is, what's to say that we would actually be convinced that it's legitimate, even if it did come in the modern age? And what I want to also lead on to say is that let's say we did actually document in our modern way that he did come 
and, and, and arrive to us. Who's to say in 2000 years we will not shun that? We will not look at it. So, oh, that was filmed on a on a puny mobile. Like now we have like like holographic like visions in our brains. Like, you know, yeah. who's to say that we would look that we wouldn't look 2000 years from now if that did happen and just reject it entirely in the same way that I have been rejecting it through Excellent the means point. and the standard of evidence from 2000 years ago. So I actually, you know, I find it very intriguing that um and 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 quite profoundly intriguing i must admit because it really does beg the question what and and this is the the biggest thing what will it actually take for us to be genuinely convinced even five thousand years from now what would it what would it actually take and that's where we have to think about certainty and how much and how much part of the pun faith that's great to have in our certainty and I'm still pondering on that, and I don't even understand that yet. But I think that yeah. is really worth considering. Right. What would it take? Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great point. Uh, know, but you know, you even look at people like Matt Delahunty, though. James, you and I have <laughs> talked about this. He, I think Michael Jones asked him, "What would it take for you to believe in God?" And yeah. I think Mike said, "If he reached down his hand to you and said, I am God,' even then, Matt would say it's probably some simulation from some." alien civilization like yeah mm-hmm. so i mean what would it ultimately take and you're right james people people can just reject anything they want right if it happened now if christ came right now two thousand years from now people could just reject it and say what you said ah, it was just made up i mean we don't believe that you know that was in the past so it's a great point i think i think the only way to um let's say yeah, the the only the most convincing way is what I said earlier. If if God revealed Himself to all of us in our own individual standard of evidence, but then the question, and then then the 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 question is begged. Well, that leaves us with no free will whether to believe Him or not. And mm-hmm. that and that you know, I have I have issues with that proposition because that assumes that we necessarily need free will under God's wrath or, or, or power. Like, why would we necessarily need that? I mean, we can go into that if we wish, but. Um, that's still another option. Um, would would he hypothetically sacrifice our our um, knowledge of him across the globe all years to come, but at the expense of our free will? Hmm. Yeah, I think you know I, I'm reminded of you know there's the atheist philosopher Kai Nelson who made an important point about miracles such that. If God would reveal himself, you know, at six o'clock every day and write in the stars, I exist, you know, that still this communal experience wouldn't induce, you know, the kind of God knowledge that we're all concerned with. And he made the interesting point that there's just always these subjective qualifications, nuances that always have to be made in our experience with God, as it were. There's always some, you know, some reason to doubt some, you know, you know, some something to employ to you know, suspend, suspend judgment or just not mm-hmm. speak on the reality of what's taking place there. Uh, coming from an atheist philosopher, I thought that was actually a, a very, you know, well put point um, that there must be something deeper than merely knowing something about God's existence or believing something about his existence. Because, you know, you know, in, in the New Testament, in the book of James, it says that even the demons believe and shudder. Uh, so what good is it for you to say that God exists, you know? And so I think God is looking for something much deeper. So like that response, um, you know, God gives us free will to believe in him or not. I don't think that's solely God's concern because there are some that believe in him, but still 
kind of, you know, through sin of pride, kind of tried to go the other direction. Um, and so I think that, that again, inviting into question to something much deeper, uh, which has to push us in the direction of religious faith. Anyway, uh, also, quick distinction, uh, certitude and certainty. So theologians often talk about certainty being like having the proof or the evidence necessary for that state of affairs, certainty. But certitude is just being without that proof, in other words. Uh, it's kind of more of an intuitive kind of uh, position, in other words. So I think, to finish here, that uh, religion offers more so certitude rather than certainty um, to make that kind of distinction. Um, anyway. Thank you. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, for sure. That's great, yeah. And even Aquinas talks about how we shouldn't talk, we should never talk about certainty, you know, any of that. He, he says paths, directions mm -hmm. towards that uh, ultimate horizon. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, because um, I, I think I think it counters certain modes of philosophers who say that there is one way of reasoning. And if we all participate in this same mode of reasoning, then we're going to end up at the end of the road, which is God. And I think just the sensibility of the tradition through Aquinas and those kinds of philosophers are saying that, no, uh, reasoning doesn't work in that kind of way. It serves these inner contemplative recesses in our you know, relationship with God. So I don't know. It, one philosophy made the important point that if we even want to represent the divine like by a miracle or an image, that it would best to be silent. So Dostoevsky oh, has been yeah, 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 yeah. Dostoevsky has been no said time. to have made the best representation of Christ in all of literature because he didn't say anything. Um, and I think that's a really important kind of observation when looking at divine reality, you know, because it invites the conversation of mysticism, contemplation, prayer, uh, which is really foreign to a lot of modern years. And I think, you know, if I'm even being honest, you know, so anyway, I'll stop there. Well, the, the current um, mode of spiritual thinking is it, it lies in, um, I don't know, retreats and, and eating. Well, I'm a vegan, but being stereotypically a vegan mm, um, mm. and sort of this woo woo ism. Um, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, that woo -woo -woo -woo. is nice. that is the kind of place we're stuck now, nowadays, at least with spirituality. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Alan Watts, the Eastern philosopher. I think mm. he's amazing. I love his lectures. His books are brilliant. Yeah. Um, and that was the time before spirituality was poisoned by these, you know, new age sort of like hippie like um, mm. stereotypes. I don't, I'm nothing against that, but the 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 stereotype is my issue. It's it's what it's the superficiality of that spirituality um, mm. that rhymes. But there we go. No, <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, yeah I, th I think modernity, of course, has tragically forgotten a lot you know um like heidegger says we you know hold on one sec <clears throat> oh yeah so we, we we're not immersing ourselves in the mystery of being anymore we're in the age of technology um, yeah. yeah so we we have we we tend to look back in the past at, you know at our ancient ancestors as just being you know idiots right but they're actually imbued with immense wisdom and again, modernity has forgotten that and they've lost that crucial wisdom that we we need to gain back by having conversations like this. You know, we're in a constant state of reacting to reaction videos. That's the state <laughs> of intrinsic being that we're in right now. Yeah. And I'm, that's quite humiliating um, to live in such a time where, where, where that, you know, where that is the predominant mode of being to just 
to prefer somebody's own experience to perceive than your own. And that isn't to say that I don't enjoy movies, video games, but it's it's to what extent that occurs. And when it goes over the top, when it becomes so manifest that you're actually forgetting who you are and, and being confused with your own psychology, mm-hmm. that's when it gets scary. For sure. Yeah. yeah, I think I remember one philosopher saying some of the extent of, you know, in the earlier part of the in the 20th century, man enjoyed this position of being an observer, a part of, you know, the you know the quantum process he had this kind of position that was integrative and in how we understood reality but now he's been kind of dethroned to spectator um but the ways of like nice. technological depersonalization kind of stuff he's kind of taken this kind of sideline kind of view and you know that that's a lot of a lot of interesting questions and inquiries and discussions there but i mean just even going back to your like analogy with food right uh i think some people have a spiritual kind of perspective which you know they're malnourished right they just aren't fed but then there are some people who are just borderline constipated. They uh, can they can be think of like an argument just accumulating more and more premises, but not really reaching a release to a mm-hmm. conclusion. Um, a lot of lives surely do end, but not enough come to conclusions. Um, I think it's an important kind of point. Um, Great point, man. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, that's Did it. Did you want to add something onto that, Kyle? Yeah. Or um, no, I'm just. Listen, taking in all what you're saying. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, man. <laughs> um, so let's see the time here. We're an hour, 16 minutes. Is there any other things you wanted to discuss? I, pr- I probably got to split soon, but. Yeah, not for, for sure. me. No, I, I think, yeah, I think we've covered a many we've covered topics. covered a lot. Yeah, yeah, we have. yeah. What's going to be the title of this video? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's going to be the hardest. It's always thing. the hard part. That's always the hard part, yeah. you know. Um, but anyway, thank you guys for, um, yeah. for great discussion. Great discussion. Together, yeah, it's been really good. And yeah. Carl, thank you for joining us as well. Um, yeah. I think you added added some really interesting points there. Yeah, Carl, you, you joined us. Yeah. Yes, bless you. Thank you. It was wonderful meeting you for the first time, especially. I didn't. Uh, I don't think I've seen your Instagram or anything, so I think you kind of came out of the blue on this one. So it was a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too active on Instagram, so. I got you. I got you. It's all good. No, it's wonderful to meet you nonetheless. So, and we'll uh, we'll we'll metaphorically uh, thank Seth again as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll thank, you. thank you, Seth. Yeah. Okay, guys. Take care, and I hope we can do this again soon. It was great. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. This was dope. So we'll all meet again soon. Bless all of you, gentlemen. Have a wonderful day or night. I think you're in nighttime. Yeah, in night for me. So nighttime in the UK, right, James? Yeah. Yeah, but it's about like ten or nine, something like that. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I can see outside. Yeah, it's dark. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I'll see All you right. guys soon. Take Thank care, you. guys. Bless you, gentlemen. All right, bye.